In March of 1987, Whitesnake released their first single and video from their forthcoming classic self-titled record, sometimes called 1987. Anyway, the self-titled record sold millions and millions of copies around the world. That first single for the song Still the Night is what some people say is the best Zeppelin song that Zeppelin ever recorded. In any event, in my vote, it's the best Whitesnake song of all time and a tremendous set closer when you see him in concert. But if you go on YouTube and watch that video and you scan forward to 3 minutes and 43 seconds, you'll see Whitesnake guitar player Adrian Vandenberg who's probably not even in the top five of all the wonderful guitar players David Coverdale has worked with in his career, pull a stunt that did not even represent how the song was played live in the studio. If you go to that mark, you'll see Vanderberg appearing to play the guitar with a violin bow. A violin bow. Now that's a Jimmy Page trademark. Those few seconds arguably ignited a feud between Robert Plant and David Coverdale and also led to the Page and Plant recording together, reconvening together for two albums and tours in the mid-90s. Along the way, though, it helped spawn one of the best and most unheralded rock releases during the advent of grunge. On this episode, Well Disguised will take a look at that record, not only as a great rock record, but it's an important historical document. Of course, I'm talking about the one release from the collaboration between David Coverdale and Jimmy Page. Let me riff here at the top of the episode about Coverdell Page, the record. This album was in my wheelhouse. This album was made for me. Jimmy Page is, if not my favorite guitar player, he's certainly in the top two. That switches back and forth, I think, between him and Richie Blackmore. But obviously, Jimmy Page, a tremendously talented individual and a titan in the world of rock and roll. David Coverdale is in my top 10 favorite vocalist of all time. He's not number 10 either. I don't know exactly where he is, but I love David Coverdale's voice. And that goes back years. I mean, if you listen to the first record in which Coverdale kind of blasted on the scene, that's, of course, Deep Purple's Burn, the first record from the Mark III version of Deep Purple. That's not all Coverdale, obviously. Richie Blackmore is, of course, on that record. Glenn Hughes, a tremendous vocalist himself, is the bass player and also sings. Ian Pace was on drums. John Lord was on the organ. Burns, a great record. It's not from the classic Mark II version of the band that I think most people think of when they think of Deep Purple, but Burn is my favorite of those records and a classic in its own right. And it's one of the reasons David Coverdale's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. If you accept my theory, though, that this record, the the, the Coverdale plant, uh, excuse me, Coverdale Page record, kind of goes back to that moment in the Still the Night video. First of all, 
Jimmy Page said when he saw that, when he saw it for the first time, he laughed at it. He just laughed out loud. He just kind of rolled with it. Robert Plant didn't roll with it so much. He started calling David Coverdale in interviews, David Cover Version. Now, clearly there is some similarity between Robert Plant's voice and David Coverdale's voice. I think that's all a little overplayed. Uh, Obviously, again, there's some similarity there. But Coverdale has, a, in my opinion, a slightly richer voice, um, a, a purer voice than Plant does. But, hey, to each their own. And if we're going to start calling anyone a cover version, if they sort of sound like Led Zeppelin or sound like they were inspired by Led Zeppelin, that's going to sweep up a whole lot more people than just White Snake. So, let's go forward to when the album was actually released. John Kolodner, who's a famous A&R guy, uh, responsible for getting lots of albums, lots of bands pushed push through especially in the 80s and 90s, he's kind of the driving force behind Coverdale Page. The album was recorded at the Little Mountain Recording Studio in Vancouver. It's the site of a lot of those records that John Kolodner was involved with, and it kind of sounds like it comes from that time. That's where Aerosmith's Pump was done. That's where Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood was done. It sounds kind of like a record that came from that era, and so that makes a lot of sense. At the time, Page was looking to do something. Jimmy Page, post-Led Zeppelin, he'd been in the fir- he'd, he'd, he'd done the record The Firm, or been in the band The Firm, uh, obviously with Paul Rogers of Bad Company. They had done a couple albums. He'd made his solo record, uh, Outrider. I like Outrider a whole lot. I'll probably do an episode on Outrider at some point. I actually kind of have a thing for solo records by guitar players of famous bands. But let's be honest, the firm had not set the world on fire. Neither had Outrider. Page probably wanted to do something with Robert Plant. I think it's not really a great secret, probably, that Page has always just kind of wanted to be in Led Zeppelin. But that wasn't happening for him at the time, and he was looking to do some work. He was getting tapes in the mail almost every day. Uh, Lots of young singers trying to stir up some interest from him. But he just wasn't getting there. And it was starting to, you know, maybe seem like he wasn't going to be able to record at all. And perhaps that's a spoiler for what comes next. But at the same time, he was listening to tapes from young singers David Coverdale was a little disillusioned with the music industry. Again, Whitesnake had had that huge success with the self-titled record and then had released Slip of the Tongue, which was not a huge success. It's hard to call it a failure, though. I mean, it's a platinum record. But David Coverdale, despite his looks, despite his hair, he was a little disillusioned with the industry. It, It seemed to become more about fashion and it was the music, and he was actually going to put White Snake kind of in mothballs, take a break for a while, and step back. He thought that they were getting White Snake was getting too much attention to their fashion and look, uh, their fashion and looks rather than the singing and the songs that they were producing. So anyway, putting these things together, John Kolodner, famous A and R man, 
knows that Jimmy Page is having trouble with the singers and the audio tapes that are getting dropped in his mailbox every other day. He also knows that David Coverdale, despite that wonderful mane of hair that he has, is tired of the state of rock records, rock music in the late 80s and early 90s. And he introduces the idea to Jimmy Page, maybe you should give David Coverdale a call and see if you guys could work something out. And Jimmy Page is receptive to that idea, and that's kind of what happens. They end up making this wonderful record together. Now, I am not a conspiracy theorist, but before we can move on, that's the written and published history of how the record came about. There is a conspiracy theory, and your willingness to entertain it perhaps comes down to your personal mentality or philosophy or just openness to believe those type of things. But I feel like I at least need to mention it in talking about this record. There is a conspiracy theory that some would float that Jimmy Page working with David Coverdale is actually really his attempt to goad Robert Plant into working with him again. As evidence for that, there's not a whole lot out there. Again, it's more of a conspiracy theory, and perhaps only Jimmy Page really knows. But it is true that after the release of the record, Page and Coverdale played a few shows in Japan. And you can watch at least some of that on YouTube if you want to. Um, But there was a whole tour planned, It was going to go worldwide. It was going to be a a, a regular album tour cycle. But Jimmy Page's management after the shows in Japan, and maybe, again, this is just a way of blaming management, management Page's management shot down any further touring at that point. And it wasn't too long after that that Robert Plant and Jimmy Page got together began working on Unleaded, the the first of the two 90s records that they put together. When that was going on, Plant and Page were interviewed in Rolling Stone magazine, and uh, I'm talking about issue 702 if you're inclined to try to look it up. Anyway, they're interviewed over a few days by the writer Anthony DeCurtis, and DeCurtis asked the two guys about popping in on a rehearsal that he wanted to see a rehearsal. And as DeCurtis writes it anyway, uh, Plant says he's open to it, but Plant wanted it to be in an interesting place. And so DeCurtis says that Plant turned to Page and said that they could have that rehearsal at quote, that transvestite bar where you first broke the news to me. And the article says that Page looked at Plant quote, uncomprehendingly, And then Robert Plant shot back, you remember where you first told me you were going to work with Coverdale. And the article then says that Page just rolled his eyes. Um, I don't think any of that is true. I don't think that Jimmy Page really met Robert Plant at a transvestite bar to tell him he was going to work with David Coverdale. I think that is kind of just reflective of Robert Plant's mischievous sense of humor and as a way of kind of uh, elbowing Jimmy Page about that whole thing. But is it evidence that maybe Page did sort of get under Robert Plant's skin by working with uh, his uh, arch nemesis, if that's not overblown and too strong? 
I don't know. But anyway, that's out there, and I feel like I should mention it. One last thing before I actually get to the music on the record. Um, the album cover is one of my favorites. If you've never seen it, it's just a road sign. It's two arrows merging together and going off, I guess, into the up part of the picture or the north part of the picture. Two arrows coming together as one, just like you would see two roads coming together to indicate merging roads. That's, I think it's really subtle. I think it's really understated. It's clever. It's really one of my favorites. Hugh Syme did that. Hugh Syme's also the person who designed the, the WS kind of Whitesnake logo that you first see on that self-titled 1987 record and has been used by Whitesnake for most of the records since then. Hugh Syme's also done a million other record albums. But the cover is really clever. I really like it. Now, okay. Talked a little bit about the backstory. Talked about the conspiracy theory. Talked about why this album was designed for me. Not really, but sort of. Let's talk about the actual songs on the record. I'm not going to go through the track in order. I'm going to shuffle it, if you will, um, and start talking about some of my favorites and then work, work, kind of work my way down. Um, but let's get to the music. Let's start with Pride and Joy. Pride and Joy was the third song on the record, it's actually the lead single, and so by that it was the first song that most of us heard from this new collaboration between Jimmy Page and David Coverdale. It starts acoustically, like a lot of Jimmy Page songs, but then it leads into this patented monster Jimmy Page riff. David Coverdale's lyrics are dirty, but in a very Coverdale way. That is, they're raunchy, but not sexist almost. Uh, Coverdale has this way of being raunchy, but in a complimentary type way. Pride and Joy is the, again, it was the lead single. It did really well on the charts. It was number one, not on the, 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 the pop chart, I guess, but it was number one for several weeks in the U.S. as the, in the mainstream rock category. And back in 1993, being number one in the mainstream rock category that meant something. That was actually a pretty big deal. The actual first song on the album, though, is the song Shake My Tree. Shake My Tree has this great riff, and the interesting story there is that this is a riff that Page had been sitting on since the In Through the Outdoor sessions from Led Zeppelin. He presented it to the other guys in Zeppelin. They didn't really go for it. Then when he was in the firm, he brought it to Paul Rogers. For whatever reason, Paul Rogers didn't bite on it either and want to do anything with it. So the, the, the riff that you hear when you listen to Shake My Tree, Page had had sitting around for about 15 years at that point. It's really catchy and it's hard to believe those guys passed on it. But David Coverdale heard it and said, thank you very much. I'll do something with that. And they do this great song that starts off the record. Now... I don't know if it's a coincidence or not that it's the first song that maybe Jimmy Page wanted to say to his friends in Zeppelin and Paul Rogers, look what you missed out on. But also Coverdale kind of starts that song in his raspy voice, not his more plant-esque voice. It's more raspy and maybe kind of distinguishes um, this record from anything you may have heard Jimmy Page do before. Anyway, Shake My Tree is a great song. Uh, it's got a harmonica solo, which is kind of weird, but it all works. Good tune. 
Jumping to the last song on the album, track number 12, Whisper of Prayer for the Dying, this is an absolutely killer song. It's maybe really the best song on the album. It's the type of epic but loud song that Zeppelin would sometimes do, and it's sort of Zeppelin-esque, I guess, in that way. There's maybe a little goofiness in there with some keyboard parts, but Page just riffs like a monster on this. There's a short guitar solo, but it's really clean and really good. Coverdale's lyrics, again, the song is called Whisper of Prayer for the Dying. It's about war and I suppose the sadness of it all. It, I guess it's not profound, but there's some really sharp lyrics from Coverdale here. For instance, he says, The soothing words of politicians, those bodyguards of lies, while guardian angels waste their time and every mother cries. And then he also says about the soldiers that they are trying to cover the heavy load walking down Armageddon Road. Of course, he says it much higher than I'm putting it there. That's pretty good stuff lyrically. This is a really good song and a great way to close the album out. All right, skipping back a little bit to the eighth song, Take a Look at Yourself. This is one of my favorite love songs of all time, and I don't like a lot of love songs. David Coverdale has an earnestness to him and a a love of simple pleasures that Robert Plant doesn't have. Not that Robert Plant isn't a romantic in a way and obviously folky in a way, but there's something about Coverdale here that makes this obviously different from the type of song that you might have heard Robert Plant do. It's also one of approximately 378 times in his career that Coverdale rhymes the word night with all right, but that's okay. There is a clever moment in there when he talks about the cold north winds blow. If you know anything about Coverdale, or maybe you have to know a lot about Coverdale, he had a pre-White Snake solo record that was called North Winds. Maybe a little sly allusion from him to that record. Don't Leave Me This Way is the ninth track on the record, and this features just really beautiful work by Jimmy Page. Listen to the melody, of course, but also pick up on all those little guitar parts, little blues parts that he sprinkles in throughout. He's just making the guitar sing on all these little riffs. Uh, You know, listen right after the first verse. I mean, this is, I would almost say, if you're listening to this song for the first time, listen to it fine. But if you're coming back to it a, a, a second time or later, try to just push Coverdale to the side for a minute and just listen to all the little pieces that Paige is doing. Um, Just say, I'm going to listen to the guitar parts. It is such a great compliment to what Coverdale's doing. We heard earlier Paige absolutely smoking on Whisper of Prayer for the Dying, but here he's cooking in a totally different way. Really pretty blues solos. The lyrics in this song are fine. They're about poor Coverdale the victim of uh, unrequited love, I suppose. Um, Maybe somewhat unlikely. Anyway, this is a really good song. I like this one a lot too. The next track I want to talk about is the fifth one on the album. It's called Over Now. There's some nice work lyrically here by Coverdale. He sings, You talked to me of virtue and sang a song so sweet. All I know is I can smell the perfume of deceit. He also says, you told me of your innocence and I believed it all, but your best friend is your vanity and the mirror on the wall. 
nice little uh, metaphor, double entendre, what have you, when he just talks about your best friend is your vanity. Um, this is a rare David Coverdale song where he's actually angry at a woman, uh, it, but it is it is a, a biting song, I suppose. It's got a nice little uh, riff from Jimmy Page. It's a good tune, too. All right, I'm just going to hit some of the high notes on the rest of the tracks on the record now. Track three is Take Me For A Little While. Melancholy lyrics from Coverdale, but a really pretty page guitar sound. Coverdale's voice is nice here, but there's not really much happening lyrically. There is, however, a gorgeous guitar solo by Jimmy Page. It's the best 30 seconds of the song. Man, he's just so good. The second track is called Waiting On You. I've said it a lot. Coverdale looks and prances and kind of acts a little like the rock slut. But he seems to have the heart of gold. It's a pure heart. He really wants the girl. And that's sort of what this song's about. It's fine. It's not special. And again, it's probably nothing. But there is a part of the song where he holds the word burn. And it's a little like the Deep Purple song of the same name. I don't know if it's kind of like the when I talked earlier about he also uh, uses the term North Winds on this album, but just something I picked up on. The sixth track is Feeling Hot. I'm an unabashed White Snake fan, and I will say that this is the most White Snake song on the record, and I don't really mean that as a compliment. It's fine, but it's 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 the worst song on the record. Number seven is Easy Does It. It's also, again, I said it's the seventh track. Like Feeling Hot, it seems to be kind of hidden mid-album. This is a song I actually can't imagine Plant uh, writing and singing. Uh, it's good, but this is not essential. And finally, the last song that I haven't talked about, and I know I've skipped all around, is the tenth song on the album, Absolution Blues. When people discuss or write this album, my experience is that this is considered the best track. Obviously, I disagree. I will also say, I understand it's not often that people are writing or discussing this record, uh, especially anymore. But um, Absolute Some Blues starts with a really sweet kind of guitar exploration by Page that leads into a big riff. The song lyrically is unrepentant about the rock lifestyle, Drinking and young girls, not caring about religion, but maybe not really, I don't know. This song could be about Coverdale. It also could be about Jimmy Page. There's um, really great guitar work here. The Coverdale whispers Absolution Blues at the end. It kind of just kind of is barely audible there. It's a good tune. It's just not one of my favorites. In talking about Absolution Blues, I think I said... Obviously, it's the 10th song on the record, which is true. And earlier I said Whisper a Prayer for the Dying was the 12th song. It is the last song, but it's only number 11. It's an 11-track record. Anyway, let's wrap this thing up. Coverdale Page, the album, went platinum. I suppose that's both a sign of success and disappointment. It did peak at number 5 on the United States Billboard charts. As I said earlier, the song Pride and Joy was number one on the rock charts for multiple weeks. Perhaps more importantly to the players involved, it outsold and outperformed head-to-head Robert Plant's record, Fate of Nations, which was also released in 1993. Fate of Nations includes the lovely song 29 Palms. So, Coverdale Page. It's a really good record. 
It's a semi-forgotten minor classic. It's a platinum record that was released right into the heart of grunge. But when you think about Jimmy Page, he seems like a man who's never been able to move on from Led Zeppelin. He had all the power in that band. He was the best musician in the band. He was the wonderful, innovative producer. He was the guitar god. He had the power in Led Zeppelin. And seemingly, as soon as it ended, he lost that power. It's always seemed that Jimmy Page would be happiest, even today, most comfortable if he was in Led Zeppelin. If he was in a band that had Robert Plant on vocals and John Paul Jones on bass and somebody, Jason Bonham or whoever, on drums. When he was in the band, he had the power. And as soon as that band ended, if there was ever going to be another Led Zeppelin or some sort of reformation of even parts of it, it would almost certainly have to have Robert Plant, right? The power in the band transferred to Robert Plant as soon as Zeppelin ended. Since Zeppelin ended, Jimmy Page has released Outrider, his solo record. And like I've said before, don't be surprised if maybe I visit that in a future episode. He has the two decent but flawed records with The Firm. You can also hear Jimmy Page on record, at least, with The Black Crows. They did a two-CD set, a, a live album, where Jimmy Page sat in with The Crows and played a bunch of Zeppelin songs. And then there's those two somewhat disappointing records with Robert Plant. The first of those, the unleaded record, about two-thirds of those songs, I believe, were Zeppelin songs. There were three or four original songs on unleaded. And then the next album, Walking Into Clarksdale. But let's be honest, Walking Into Clarksdale and even unleaded, they're not really Page Plant records. They're Plant Page records. These are in keeping with how Robert Plant has come to see himself, they don't have loud music on them. These are more acoustic, slower, quieter songs that certainly are part of what Jimmy Page does, but not entirely. It's not how Jimmy Page became Jimmy Page. Those are the major pieces of new work that we've received from Jimmy Page since Zeppelin. And that's pretty much it. So where does that leave Coverdale Page? The Coverdale Page album really is the definitive post-Zeppelin piece of art that we got from Jimmy Page. Now, to his credit, David Coverdale stood strong. He didn't wilt next to the guitar legend that is Jimmy Page. But this album represents the beautiful acoustic work and the blazingly brilliant electric guitar god bringing it all to the table. When you listen to this record, you don't get the feeling that this was Jimmy Page punching the clock at all. This was not an album he wanted to make to fulfill some sort of contract with a record company. This was a record he needed to make. He had these songs and he had these ideas and he had this desire to get this music out there so that we could listen to it. In the past... 40 plus years, we haven't gotten a lot of music from Jimmy Page. And this is the high water mark. And that's why it's an important record. For my money, it's better than Presence. And it's better than In Through the Outdoor. So for Jimmy Page music, this is the best album he's put out in a really long time. I celebrate the Coverdale Page album. And I will always remember it fondly.
But I wish over the past four plus decades, we'd just gotten a little bit more of Jimmy Page's art. I wish he had found a way to release more music to us, even if it couldn't be in the guise of Led Zeppelin. And for that reason, while I love Coverdale Page the record, I'm also always going to think of it a little wistfully, because as great as it is, it's also a reminder of what might have been. Thank you for listening. I'm still just a rank amateur recording these things on my kitchen table, but if you've made it through the second episode, I really appreciate it. I think it's a little better than the first episode, and while I still don't really understand how to edit these things, I made a few little edits to try to get uh, some of the pauses and that sort of thing out. If you want to connect with Well Disguised, feel free to send me an email, welldisguised at outlook.com. I'm also on Twitter. I'm staying away a little bit from some of the other social media right now just because, you know, the whole world's blowing up. But I am on Twitter. at uh, The handle is at well underscore disguised. You can follow me there. Be happy to receive any feedback. Like every other schlub that has a podcast, I guess all the way up from, from me to Joe Rogan or whatever, uh, I would appreciate... If you like it at all or think it's promising at all or just want to be nice to me, subscribe, rate it, leave a good review. I think that helps in Apple's algorithms to spread the word and maybe other people would be able to listen to it. Certainly if you have friends or message board friends or anything else that you'd like to pass along to, I would appreciate that as well. I foresee Well Disguised coming out every two weeks. We're launching with two episodes, these first two episodes about Robert Plant and then the Coverdale Page record. And from then on, though, we're going to have releases every two weeks. So it's going to be bi-weekly. I think that's what bi-weekly means. I can go ahead and promise you we're not going to do two episodes a week. Um, It's going to be every other week. And next time on Well Disguised, I promise you, no Led Zeppelin talk. This is not a Led Zeppelin podcast, even though I love Led Zeppelin and I love talking about post-Led Zeppelin projects from the people who are in it. But next time, we're not going to go there at all. Instead, I want to talk about a band and a record that seemed poised to launch into the stratosphere and then it just didn't work. I want to talk about why next time on Well Disguised.